attention. My guest today, and I can say this, Cameron, you're well known in world rowing because you've been at the pointy end for about 15 years. You represented Australia at two Olympic Games, winning a silver medal in Beijing and uh, multiple world championship events. You won a gold medal in Lucerne, Switzerland. And uh, now you're the CEO of 776 BC. Welcome. And, and how did you get started with rowing, mate? What's the, the background there? Well, I mean, <clears throat> it wasn't an obvious starting point because it wasn't very early days. I was a country, grew up in a country in South Gippsland, which is about two hours outside of Melbourne. And it was a very country town, so 6,000 people. Australian rules, football, cricket, tennis were probably the main activities you jumped into. And But my parents, whether they got sick of me or the, the idea of getting a, a really good education, they sent me up to boarding school in Melbourne and went to Scotch College. And rowing's big at Scotch College. So that was, it's, that's one of the big sort of you know, sports to get yourself into. And I mean, like, it was one of those things that, immediately i felt like it would fit my sort of interest in sport so i wandered down to the boat sheds at scotch college and and then spent the next 15 plus years rowing at a pretty uh, high level so it was that was my intro but it was um not until about year 10 so i would have been about 15 or 16. you were playing what australian rules football up to then in the bush right yeah yeah Australian rules football. I mean, I look, I, like, I enjoyed getting into any sport. So I was pretty active across a whole lot of different running, some triathlons, tennis. I loved tennis. So I was really into that. And actually, funnily enough, when I went to Scotch, I did actually so originally go down to the tennis courts and I saw a few guys hitting. And I was like, I'm a fair way sort of short of what these guys are doing in their tennis game. And then and then went down to the rowing shed. So it was rowing, yeah, it was something new and different. And But Australian rules football, I was pretty passionate about what I was doing in the football. What was your ambition, though, around sport? Were you, when you were playing footy or when you were playing tennis, was it to be the best and then you just came along rowing? And what was your thinking there? I mean, because you're trying different sports. Yeah, it was always to be the best and to get, to the top level of the sport that I was in. I, was, I think I naturally had a pretty competitive streak in me. So to be in a sport, it wasn't just to be there and do your thing. It was, how can I get better at this? How can I be the best at this? What's the next level to get to? And, and so definitely football, that was a real sort of passion for me. So I was trying to, my dream was to get drafted and into um the professional league here in Australia. and But then, I mean, the other thing, so it was probably the biggest draw card for me was just the Olympics. And I do remember watching, it must have been the Seoul Olympics because I would have been eight at the time. So that was the first time I remember watching the Olympic Games and just being swept up in that event and the people at the absolute pinnacle in all these different sports heading to a single place every four years. I, like that seemed like just a dream scenario for me. So I had probably two competing goals is Australian rules football to be a professional um, player there or be an Olympian. And that, but I was always pretty driven to get to the, the sort of the top level. So you ran into rowing at Scotch College. Describe how that happened. You're just seeing 
some blokes going down to training and they were mates of yours or they invited you in? What happened there? Well, and sort of a reasonable athletes, any new kids coming into the school, you because it is a big focus for the school, they, they probably heard the tall ones down to the rowing um, sheds and, and get them to jump on the rowing machine. And, and I remember within the first couple of weeks, I jumped on the rowing machine and did a test and it was a pretty good score for someone who had never jumped on a rowing machine Was it a before. 2K test or something else? I think we were doing 1,500 metres at that time. So um, still enough to put you in the pain cave. And, and I did a score that put me right in at a level where I was like, well, we've got to get this guy into a boat. And, and so that was how it started. I wasn't, when I first jumped on a boat, it wasn't. The ergo sort of score didn't convert immediately to what I did in the rowing boat. I, I got put, I remember very early on, and you have your first, second, thirds all the way through at the school level. And I went down and the coach who heard about my ergo score put me in the third crew, which was the third best crew in the the whole boathouse down there and, and I hadn't spent too much time rowing so uh, I was like geez this is a pretty good start jumping straight into the thirds and I was out for a row for about 10 minutes and he saw me bounce up and down and not in time and he, he put me back in the speedboat and said oh look you can jump back into a lower crew so I, I started that first season in the sevens and ended up oh well I was, that's where I ended up in that first season is in the sevens and just trying to Learn the basics as you will. Did you have any mentors or mates in all the crews that kept you going and inspired you, or was it just the Olympic thing? What was it, Cameron? Oh, look, there was a couple of really well. There was a couple of great people in the program down at Scotch College. Andy Mueller, who was an ex-Australian representative rower, was involved, and he was the first coach, and so he was someone that I probably immediately connected with in terms of someone who you know coached me when I even when I wasn't in the first crew just get that skill set and sort of basic down pad and then look I mean there is a pretty deep support sort of group around the Scotch College network there's a guy Don Werner who was a really old Scotch collegian who would on Sundays I'd skip mass and go down and go out in the single skull and he'd go out in his single skull and just teach me some of the basics oh, you go in the scale. alongside you. Yeah, and so that um, one, I love the idea of spending Sunday morning out in the river as opposed to in church, which I'm um, not sure everyone was happy about that. But then, yeah, just, you know, that sort of time, just learning the sort of learning the basics and being out there in a single scale was, was and I mean, actually, it was a pretty nice way to start in the sport. Like that was sort of, it's a pretty nice sort of thing to um, be doing on Sunday morning. So, yeah, that, that was probably the initial list of people. There's a lot of people involved in how I progressed in rowing, but they were probably the sort of key starting people. A lot of time in the small boat, huh? Do you think it contributed to your technique and acceleration? or Just the basic movement pattern, probably. Yeah, like I think just having the ability to understand when you move certain parts of your body, what it does to a boat. And if you can get through that initial very wobbly stage in a single scale. <laughs> sort of, and I mean, like, to be honest, I wish I stuck with it a little bit through my rowing career and touch base with a single more often, because I just think that sort of, it, it does 
tune you into just how you're moving a boat and the sequence of movements that really work for you. So I think that that sort of early time in the single skull got some of the got me to speed up to where the rest of the um, guys in the, the top boats were at, and and I've missed because I came in year ten. A lot of the guys that was in the sort of the boathouse had been rowing from year eight, sort of year nine, and so they'd they'd gone through that initial sort of learning phase, and it was probably a bit more natural in terms of what they were doing. So the time in the single probably just having to fast track some of that movement patterns, which was good. So was it the, did it come naturally to you or is it something that you really had to work at? Yeah, I'd say it, would, it was pretty natural. Certainly the physical side was very natural to me just because I, I really enjoyed working hard. So like that was my go-to. And, and so the physical training and so that side of the sport, I was very naturally equipped and, and gifted in what I was doing in that space. The skill sets was pretty natural. Like I sort of, I felt reasonably comfortable. But then I think as you dive deeper into the sport, like it's just, you, there's so much refinement of your movement that sort of occurs that um, you never really feel um, like you're finished. <laughs> and the, you more, know, the, more you, the more you find out what you don't know, right? You're just peeling up. Oh, goodness. Look at this. Keep testing, keep experimenting. Yeah, to a point where even. I look back on some of the stuff that I um, did and how I approached things in my rowing career, I'd, I'd certainly tweak and adjust things knowing what I know now and probably being a better student of the sport and, and becoming a little bit of a rowing tragic in sort of you know, looking at rowing, old rowing videos and sort of, yeah, there's things I would change, but then that's just the whole sort of part of learning and, and being a constant sort of student of what sort of well, you, you, you've baited us now mate so what, what are the things when you reflect back on your your elite career that you do differently i think there's so and particularly because of my work ethic there's a tendency to work hard at the sacrifice of you know really working well and so really focusing on what you're there to do so you can rowing's a sport where you can fall into a trap pretty easily of really working hard and feeling like that's a tick in the box for the session that you've done. And, and I think sort of, you know, it's just such a fundamental part of our sport, the work side of it and how much is involved in the physical sort of training. And so that, <clears throat> that is such a sort of big part, but you've got to make sure that you're just being smart about sort of training. And so where I just go is what's, the session intended to do so the real purpose around the session and once you've done it that's enough and really then focus on the recovery side so I've always felt like I was one of those athletes that train more so what more can I do what sort of and just probably not just focusing enough on that's the quality of the session that we were targeting to do we've ticked that box now it's time to recover properly and then the other part of it is you know, we, there's a lot of training that you do off the water and, and really drilling into well, what is it that you're doing off the water that is helping you get faster in the boat and stronger in the boat? And is it like, again, is it just filling in a training program and filling in work sessions where you're working hard? Or is it sessions that are really assisting with your 
efficiency of movement, your strength, how strong do you need to be? I mean, that's one of the things that I've sort of seen is that the gym space is a bit of a trap because you can get into the gym and get really strong, but the strength is only really useful to if you know how to use that strength and move with it. And and then the other thing is, yeah, just your balance and coordination. I'd look at just all the things that you're doing off the water and just going, are you doing enough work to you know, be in the boat? So set yourself up to be in a boat and move really efficiently and effectively. Because it's a sport where you're putting yourselves in positions that are not exactly natural for your body to be in. And so the coordination and the efficiency within those positions and then your ability to apply power is, is just so critically important. And, and I think we miss that sometimes in terms of just the, the work program. But, but yeah, like not over, being really a bit more purposeful about what you're doing, not overworking, because overworking is as bad as underworking. And I think that's something that I still sometimes don't realise. I'd still jump on a you know, row machine here and I'll always typically overwork from what I was intending to do in a session. And, and so that's something that I'm just constantly trying to tap myself on the shoulder and just trying go, to find the balance, right? Yeah. Like just don't overcook it. And, and I remember reading a, so Pete Reed, who I raced against in the 2008 Olympics. And, and I mean, he's, he was a very successful Olympian. I think he's a three-time Olympic gold medalist and, and he did this great, it must have been about two or three years ago, he did this great 365 days, I think, of sort of tips of his rowing career and all the things that he's learned. And, and there's one that stuck in my mind of just the understanding your training zone and making sure you're really disciplined to be in your training zone. And just whether that's heart rate or whether that's boat speed or whether that's some other marker. What's on the machine? what's on the machine, but just really being disciplined about if that's what you've set up as your program, then that's what you need to make sure that you hit and don't do any more than that because that's the thing that will start to get you into the danger zone of also that improvement curve is you really get in the way of improving and the rate of improvement if, you're, if you overwork even a little bit. Yeah. And that's not to say that sort of, there's a lot of times within a program where you really need to absolutely test your limits, but you need to be sort of really clear when that is. And, and then when it's not a session to test your limits, don't test your limits. And I think that's what I fell into the trap sometimes is that my capacity to work hard was my strength. So that was my, that was my go-to. And then it was a bit of a, a trap at times. But do you think that's also probably the, the wisdom that you've earned through the the couple of decades that you've been involved in the sport because you need to really understand what are the demands of the event in order to design a program that's going to be effective in order to understand what is the intention of this session of the program so it's kind of let's start with the end goal in mind what is what are the demands of the event 2000 meters men's four or an erg and it's then piecing yep. all those bits of the puzzle. And it sounds like you've, you're reflecting back on what are the different elements of success that I need to put together? What do I need to lean into a little bit more? What do I need to maybe reflect on and go resting is training? Yep. And plan a bit yep. more. Yeah, totally. Like, I think that's the thing is that, unfortunately, <laughs> for all of us, 
we only learn through experience and you only get that perspective through going through a whole lot of different seasons or campaigns and programs where you go down this route and you go, hang on, that didn't work out how I wanted it to. Or you go down another sort of path and you go, geez, that worked. Like that program and that structure of what we're working towards there really just clicked in. And so understanding is just, it takes time and then experience. And I mean, look, and, and I will say like, I was, there are athletes like the Drugins and like the sort of who very naturally gifted and, and they get to, I suppose, be in sort of an area of the sport where they get to experiment a little bit more, but they're, they're so naturally gifted in what they're naturally able to do that they're at a level that then their natural sort of God given gift is putting them in the top sort of top boat and winning gold medals and then they get to experiment a little bit more whereas I feel like I was a very naturally gifted athlete but but in terms of the complete sort of athlete I had to do a lot of thinking and learning and I feel like I'm still doing that which is I actually enjoy that part of it it's it's a, it's a blessing too to keep learning mate learning and yeah. growing but do you think with mm. that it's kind of like that 10,000, anything to do with that 10,000 hour rule that was, that's bandied about that it actually the athlete does need, or the businessman does need that learning experience, that learning curve. They, t and they can amplify that by going to school or going, having a great rowing coach, a great program, but you actually need that time to embed the learning, to make sense of it, and then to course correct. And if that's the case, are we giving too much assistance to athletes right now with just throwing wisdom at them from super experienced program directors, high performance sports leaders, psychologists, physiologists, and not actually letting the athlete move through that learning? Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of aspects in that. I mean, like there's, yes, I think there's too many inputs these days in terms of high performance programs and what the athlete has to try to take in and then produce a performance out of it so i think that the inputs that they have to do work through these days you consider 20 30 years ago and the information that we had available and what we worked on was very simple now the tools that we've got are awesome these days but it's about how you use those tools and then package it up in really simple information to to make you a better athlete and improve in the key areas that you need improvement in and it is it's not yeah the athlete needs to then go through the learning experience and and not just have it as an external cue but start to sort of understand it sort of think about it experience it and then and then it becomes very internal in terms of their confidence of their ability and and yeah like it's interesting because i i rode through an interesting period where the sport was changing rapidly with the amount of performance information and data points and inputs that was coming into the high performance environment. And, and when I sort of reflect on that sort of journey, it's, there was some good stuff. And then there was a lot of stuff that got misused just because it was the, the new, you know, exciting thing to sort of, I mean, biomechanics is a classic one. I think the biomechanics that you put on a boat and, there's some so, there's some awesome stuff that you can 
pull from that. And then there's some stuff that is so counterproductive in terms of how a boat um, gets put together and how you want athletes just to sit in a boat and think and not overcomplicate their Can you give us some you know, examples? What, what in your mind is overcomplicating the, the rowing? At oh, the... look, I mean, there's some good examples that sort of I live through. I mean, we went through a number of campaigns and even the 2012 um, Olympic campaign where we had a hyper-focus on people's individual power curves that were produced within the Biomex gates. And at the end of a session, we'd dive into each individual's graph of where this, their power peaks and all this. And I mean, like, fundamentally, like it was just pulling the boat apart because you're getting eight individuals in a boat all trying to produce these power peaks, which didn't really focus on how we're coming together as a crew and how you're producing power collectively to make a boat go fast. It became very individual in terms of, well, I've produced these watts, this guy's produced that watts, so that means that sort of I've outperformed this guy. And it was like, it was just a complete misuse of some really valuable data points. And we forgot what we were there to do. And then it, it ultimately meant that trying to bring the crew together yeah, you know, within the power phase of it was was just counterproductive. So it was that was a clear one to me is that you use that information really in a targeted way to make a boat go faster. And sometimes in a combination, you're going to have people that produce really good power, and then you've got others that are complementary to that that power in a boat, and so they're smoothing out the whole collective power phase in a boat that produces boat speed and and it felt like we were yeah we were going to war against each other in some respects which and i mean that was just a classic example of we i reflect back and go we had some great athletes in a boat and we we didn't row together because we were trying to chase these sort of really valuable data points which ultimately got in the way of us rowing fast together which which then, was the, the end goal, right? Rowing fast together and faster than the other boats. Well, the other thing too, which I've seen where some programs have had success, and this is from the outside. I, I don't have all the sort of intricate knowledge of how these programs run and all that, but I feel like, and New Zealand's a really good example where they focus on boat speed. I, this is my possession. They focus fundamentally on boat speed and within the programs of all these different sessions, the the boat speed is the key thing that they're trying to go after and as the sort of the key objective of each session. And so then you get these boats that they move differently and they don't look, sometimes they don't look quite right in terms of this technique's doing this and this other boat's doing this. And, but then if you actually just look at the boat speed and what the boat's doing, it's like, shit they're going fast yeah. <laughs> like and yeah. i mean like a classic one is eric and Hamish in the pair and the amount of times that i think people tried to look at them study what they were doing and try to still do something similar it was like you can't row in a similar way to what those guys are doing and and no disrespect to obviously those guys in terms of but if you watch them paddling around it wasn't the prettiest paddling it was the boat would move quite a bit and their, even their body movements didn't seem that well sequenced together. And then at speed, but the whole thing just, 
it was just amazing. Like the, the sort of the power phase and everything just matched off and they were just at a completely different sort of speed level to everyone else in the field. But, you know, if you tried to pull apart the technique and at lower rates, what they're doing, oh, we've got to do this, then it was, it's not something that sort of you could replicate and do yourself. And so I think just going back to, they were obviously really focused on the boat speed that they were trying to produce out of that pair. And that was, and that involved some pretty individual movements with how they, you know, achieved that. But that's everyone, it's an individual in terms of you jumping in the boat and this height and moving this sort of um, way and other guys sort of a little bit different. And so I think you need a collective part of what you do in a rhythm and in a power phase of a boat. But, but then don't try to get the individual movements all matching because you'll spend seasons and seasons wasting your time. And often sometimes those individual movements what makes that athlete, you know, move, you know, at speed. And anyway, we can go on about it. No, no, but you're touching on a point that I wanted to talk to you about, which is about your thoughts around technique and what actually moves the, the boat fast. And I guess you've had uh, a few great inspirations on, on your, in your rowing career. You were around Drew Ginn and James Tompkins and others. What are you, yep. from all those, those 15 years, a decade and a half, the two Olympics, going mighty fast in that Coxus four and the eight and the King's Cup eights. Yep. What, what do you take away as the essence of a technique that you feel really comfortable with? It may not be the general consensus, but a technique that you feel really moves the boat fast. And you're not a sculler, right? You're a, not a sculler no, and, and, and an emergent surf ski paddler. Yep. Yep. Um, which carries over some of this. Uh, the key techniques. I mean, it is really, I think, so the key things that you know, you've got to work out in a power phase. So obviously a strong position out the front. So don't get yourself in a weak position, but understand what is a strong position for you to apply power at the front. And then obviously you need to get the blade in a really sharp fashion, but not aggressive fashion. And then it's creating a dynamic drive phase and really that's got to be the starting point of, of building a, a crew boat is that sort of the blade in and then the dynamic power phase that you now obviously there's a legs body arms a sequence there but crews focus on different things to make the canadians used to really emphasize the second half sort of swing and then there's other boats that are quite aggressive off the front i feel like you've got to sort of I think power strokes is a really good session to bring together a power phase of a crew boat and and then understand how is that really dynamic and sustainable. And and then obviously the second half I think is really important, but it's but don't think about the big rocks and think about the big sequence of movements and don't get caught in the finer details of hands positions and like all this stuff is important, but don't go down the rabbit hole of overcoaching different parts of the stroke that sort of right into the detail if you haven't got the basics of a really dynamic power phase locked in and all the boats that I rode in that were really fast boats you could feel that there was a real sharpness on the front end and just collective drive that was really well matched off and I mean 
if I think about the sessions that sort of more often than not brought that together was a lot of power stroke work that you could feel what everyone was doing and then you could start to really time that collectively and then and then once you take the power band off or you start to row all four or eight it would just really move and so I think that's the key stuff but but then I mean like again if I watched Drew and Jimmy like you know I was always amazed at just how easy and efficient it looked and there was you know there wasn't an obvious you know sort of power phase that was really strong and aggressive it was just a really efficient movement and then even if I watch some of those sort of crews from Tokyo the thing that I find amazing about our sort of Australian men's four that that one you're not you're not second guessing whether they're working hard <laughs> no, you know, the, I the mean intensity, they were going for it from the gun weren't they it's amazing like and the intensity that those guys can get to out of the blocks and stay at I think is is amazing I think my point is that there's different ways to do it and you can see within their sort of power phase it's a really super aggressive drive phase that sort of they're they're doing at a high cadence and and it's and when it is timed really it's a really fast boat and and so there's different ways of doing it but but you've got to you've got to work on the stuff that produces boat speed first if you if you're worried about too many other things then you'll never get fast producing boat speed how about the recovery cameron maintaining or even improving boat speed on the recovery it looked like the aussie men's four was just tapping the boat along at an incredible rate almost not even letting it slow down yep yeah yeah and that is part of the skill part of our sport that you then need to understand how to what i was talking about before is just the coordination of your movement so that there's no heavy points within your rhythm and stroke so yes the power phase needs to be dynamic but then you don't want it stopping really heavily at the back or so that's the the real skillful part where all your hard work will start to get rewarded if you get the recovery coordinated properly and start to understand just where you can really lose speed i mean like even into the front that sort of motion of being too aggressive on the foot plate that's where you wipe up a lot of speed but then you want you know to be able to develop a dynamic power phase and i mean this is some of the stuff that's really tricky for young rowers to get their head around and probably shouldn't worry too much about you know those things or overthinking those things but but the recovery yeah definitely it's a coordination thing to me the coordination and and balance if you've got good control of your movement then you'll be able to apply power and then recover effectively so you're not slowing the boat unnecessarily at any points in the sort of recovery phase so when you were put, when the Aussie team was putting the boats together and you'd head off on the European campaign, how many weeks before the World Championships would you head over to Europe to Varese or Gavarati? Well, we'd often do the World Cup, at least the final World Cup, and and most of the time, probably sort of the the final two World Cups. So okay. you'd spend a fair bit of time on the ground in Europe before the World Championships. Presumably, like 10, 10, 12 weeks or. 
Yeah, 10 weeks, eight to 10 weeks is probably a pretty standard campaign over there, which is, yeah, a lot of time on the ground. But I mean, like, was we had a good base. Like, we were based in Varese in Italy, which is like, if anyone that hasn't been there, it's it's like, if you had to put together, you know, the most perfect sort of rowing lake to to train on, Varese is, is, is pretty close to it. And so Incredible our base... conditions, isn't it? You know, the consistency to... Lane That's 2000 right. meter courses. Yeah. You got the European Training Center there. European Training Center, good pizza up the road, gelati, coffee. I mean, it's <laughs> one of those things now. It was a pretty good lifestyle in terms of just training at elite level, sort of being with a good group, and then sort of in Italy, getting to enjoy some parts of it. Yeah. That's one of the benefits of being an elite athlete. Other than going up to the up the road to get pizza, coffee, and and gelato, mate. How many? What would a typical day look like for the Aussie team, training wise? Well, a typical day was three sessions. So you, the first, you'd be on the water for at least probably two hours, get off and you know fuel fuel up and a big breakfast, and then get back on for probably a technique session. So you know an, an hour sort of um, with the technique session. And then the afternoons, whether it was on the rowing machines, ergs, in the weight room, you might have some other sort of cross-training. So, yeah, it was the standard was probably a two rows and then, and then a cross-training activity in the afternoon. And, I mean, when you're all the to and from, the sort of fueling up, that's a full day. <laughs> like it's, the to and from is a 10-minute walk, though, mate. <laughs> when I say to and from, you're right. We made it easy for ourselves because we actually we literally walked from the uh, the training base, or the the accommodation down to Gavarati. Round to Gavarati. Yeah. So the to and from, what didn't chew up a lot of time, but then when you put it all together, like you know, there's that's a full days of training. It was probably five hours of active training, and then and then everything that sits around it. So yes, pretty high, high intensity. Like, like the, the same volume as a Tour de France rider would do, five six hours every day. But you're doing a lot heavier loads, right? Weightlifting, yep, yep, yep. bungee cord rowing, technique. Yeah, wow. No, there's a lot how'd of. You, uh... How'd you keep the motivation through that, Cameron? Eight ten weeks away from home, you're really flogging yourself to death. It must be after six weeks. Yeah, it's yeah, like you can get. You can get into a bit of a hole with with those kind of tours at times where just yeah you get a bit homesick. One of the challenges, and and I saw where we did it, we, we extended the tour for even sort of two weeks, and so it became a really long time overseas. And by the time the World Champs came along, you were excited about racing the World Champs, but you're also excited about just going home. And so I think that's the balancing act: is that you've got to have enough time over there to get on the ground, get feel like you're in a European summer and and in your time zone and in your rhythm over there. But but you're living out of a bag for ten weeks and and you're yeah away from your family and friends at home. And so the balancing act of getting that right is is was sometimes hard. But then you ask that training that you're doing every day, like it's hard work. It is. It was great, great fun. I, I did really love that training sort of part of it. So I didn't have a problem doing a hard training program. 
So when you were having a, a bad day or a down day, what were the things you'd do to pick yourself up? Go get a gelato or a coffee or go for a bike ride? Or Yeah, I think that was the key thing is just to try to have some time out, whether it's just sitting up the road at a cafe and having a coffee and reading a book or but just getting out of the intensity of the training environment and the group. And I, I used to really enjoy being around the, the guys that you row with but then I would like to just have a bit of downtime myself and so yeah I'd often walk up the road and grab a coffee and read a book at a local cafe which again pretty nice thing to go and do in, in pre-internet mate pre-iphone well it was wasn't it nice it was like it was a really nice a simple like the earlier tours like it was very early days i'm showing my age a little bit but it was very early days internet so you didn't really you weren't surfing the net <laughs> just because it would take it one it would cost you a, a lot of money to do it and two you a website page would probably take 10 minutes to load anyway so it was life was pretty simple which which like i don't envy some of the um well the the lead into sort of some of the big competitions these days and just all the sort of social media and all the sort of inputs. and Because I, I often think high performance, a lot of high performance is about how you control your environment and keep it as simple and targeted as you can when you know, are heading to your biggest competition. And, and these days, that's a lot harder than it was. Even my first Olympics in Beijing, you couldn't access... Facebook, you, Instagram wasn't a thing back then, and social media wasn't a thing really. So we we had it pretty simple in terms of just going out and trying to row our best race, as opposed to okay, I've rowed that race, I've got to report back into everyone how things are going, and yeah. What's your approach to setting goals and outlining the year? When you look back and reflect at your rowing career, and I know you've told us you love work rate. Right, so you love to train, mm. and so it's there's a desire to get into it. But did you sit down and, and nut out the main targets for the year and share a bit of yeah. your approach? Yes, I was good at it sometimes, and then another thing I I wish I was probably a bit methodical, more methodical about doing it as a practice because it certainly worked for me when I did take the time to sit down and map out what I was doing and then, and then, and actually, yeah, think about the small sort of, you know, building blocks to the ultimate goal at the end of a season. And when I took the time to do it, it was really effective. And then, and then there was other seasons where, yeah, you're just part of the program and, and you're probably not um, doing it as a practice every year. So if I, that was another thing I'd probably go back and change is just, yeah, be very methodical about that. Even though it's, I used to find it, it, it was exhausting to do. It felt like. So, I mean, what, what were you actually pinpointing as your goal? Would it be an erg time? Or... Yeah, it would be erg times, domestic results. So um, finishing first in the men's pair at the national titles and selection titles and, and then the international results and what boat you'd want to be in and, and then it might even be what times you wanted to row. And so where I say it was exhausting, it was like it's if you do it properly, it's quite an involving process that you have to think about. 
all these things. And at times, I felt like it was exhausting to do. And other times, like, I'd do it and it would actually sort of get me quite excited in terms of just then what I was going after. So, I mean, my only point there is that, like, I think some people are really natural at that kind of thing. Like, you know, they are very structured and write their goals down. And then if you're not like that, then that's fine. Like, I think you don't have to be that way. And then if you're not that way, you're not going to perform. So, but there is a discipline to it. And the discipline pays off was my experience is that when I put the discipline in to actually sit down and structure what I was trying to do, the results would pretty closely match what I was, what I'd set out to do. Okay. And when you, what are some of the metrics that you'd be following to say, I'm on track? I'm on track to my goal. I'm on track to hit that erg number. I'm on track with being the fastest pair in Australia. Well, look, it was just largely results driven, really. Yeah. Which, which again, I think there's probably better layers to build into it these days in terms of how I'd think about that and, and probably be a bit more focused on boat speed through all the training programs and where I needed to be at certain times. Because then that would give you comfort that you're on track and you may not be winning this race, but that's fine because the intention was that we were part of the program. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a bit more of a leading indicator whether anything like uh, heart rate or you'd be measuring watts or looking at your body composition on getting stronger or lighter or. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of those factors like heart rate, I actually wish. Uh, like again this sort of goes back to my work ethic and my mentality about working is that I, I used to think heart rate was one of those things so it's like ignore it work hard and don't stop a session just because your heart rate is you know getting too high and then I had a couple of seasons where it was really structured heart rate lactates you know and every week we were measuring you know on these really specific ergo sessions, just your output per week. And seeing that, that was a bit of an eye-opener to me and it probably happened a bit later than what I'd like. But, what um, season was that? That was, that was leading into the 2012 Olympics. And so physically I was in the best shape I've ever been. And the improvement curve that I saw from being really structured around tracking those key markers you know so heart rate lactate and output and seeing that just shift up so your heart rate would stay consistent and your lactate would stay consistent but the output started to really shift up every week and it was a really good lesson to me in terms of don't try to increase your output too quickly if and and also understand what's happening with your sort of heart rate and lactate because that's yeah you can increase your output and um and you can cook yourself. And the idea is you're trying to get to a level where you are able to sit on a threshold and be really comfortable at that threshold. And, and so and that was... Intention, and what's the intention of the work? That's what you were saying before. What's the outcome you want to achieve and, and training a bit smarter, more yep. precise? Yeah, completely. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, like there's a patience to putting, putting it all together because... You know, again, if you've got a really good work ethic, you can work too hard too early and and you're not sort of then 
on that nice improvement curve that you can put together if, if you've got a bit of discipline around your the training program, the structure that sort of sits with the outputs and, and what you should be doing at certain times. I'm getting lots of notes here, mate. What do you, what do you think uh-huh. it is that highly successful rowers do consistently that others don't? I mean, is there a habit or a behavior that you've observed in others, in yourself, that consistently high performance, like Will Satch, Drew Ginn, Jimmy Tompkins, others, what could that be? Well, consistency. <laughs> I think it's, I think, yeah, it's, it is the consistency that sort of sits there where you, you're producing, you know, the right quality for that session at the right time and you're really consistent with that approach, you know, through a season. And I mean, like the thing with our sport within rowing is that, you know, it, it is great. Like you can't fluke it. Like it's, it's something that gets put together over a long time. And, and so when you get to the final sort of event, the question marks on your performance and your capacity to perform should be should be very small in terms of just down to conditions and but but you should have answered a lot of the sort of the key questions and and so the consistency builds confidence so i think that's the the thing too is that the best athletes they knew what where they were trying to head and they didn't need to yeah be killing it here and then if the main goal was in six months' time. And they had an understanding of the path that they were on. They were really you know, consistent about you know, the quality that they were producing week in, week out. The session in, you know, every session, you know, there was a real sort of quality standard that they were hitting. And then that just builds awesome confidence. And like when we rode the 2008 Olympic campaign, we, that sort of was a bit of a aha moment in terms of going our consistency of the quality of the sessions that we put together and it wasn't a long campaign it was like four four or five months but but it's just so we used to get off the water and rate and keep it really simple in terms of the post road discussion it was like how do we rate that row and it started off as sevens and sixes and sevens and then it would creep up to sevens and eights and then by the last month it was like nines was a pretty consistent number we were hitting and it was just your confidence that sort of grew from your ability to go we know exactly how to hit that rhythm what that feels like our physical sort of you know conditioning exactly how hard we know to push and so all the sort of things that you want to sit on the start line and go I know what I'm about to do here I think the best athletes they they understand that so it is a yeah a consistency thing, not just one thing, but it's and you've got to build it over time. So let's. I'm looking at that poster of a kayaker in the background there. For uh-huh. those of you that can see the, can see it. Those that you can't on the podcast, we've got an Olympian from Australia, K1. Who's that in the back? That is. You've put me on the spot now. What's his name? Jordan Wood. So he's just, he's paddled at the Tokyo Olympics and he's, he's, I think he did a couple of Olympic games. He was world champion. He's a, he's a very good paddler. So yeah. He, and he's wearing he's your 776 a, kit. He's got our gear on. 
he's got a serious look to his face and he, yeah, he's over my shoulder, sort of just keeping me honest in terms of what I'm doing here. He's, he's almost <laughs> eclipsing you. He's bloody huge and the, the post yeah, well, is life size either. <laughs> it's, a great, it's a great image. It's a great image. So when did you first get the idea to, to get into sports clothing and start up 776 BC? It's actually around the time of the London Olympics. And so it was around, I'd worked in finance and worked as an analyst and, and managing different people's money and looking at different companies and spent a lot of time doing that. And I think I, I really liked the idea of building your own company and business. And, and if you're going to put a whole lot of energy into something, then yeah, build something, do something and, and, and I think it fits with the athletes' approaches that you're trying to own your performance and your you know, destiny in terms of where you want to end up. And so the idea of building a business and a brand that really stood for something was pretty attractive. And then, I mean, look, to be honest, the, the making performance gear, like clothing, wasn't obvious to me all the time, but I did have a really good appreciation for gear that I like to wear and gear that didn't work. And so yeah. I was always conscious of it as I'd train as an athlete of going, this feels great and I will always use this and this stuff just doesn't work. It and then sort of trying to... And, and you yeah. always go back to your favourites and then they start wearing out and you, and you haven't yep. got any left or someone next to Yeah, and, and then I suppose the next level of just understanding, well, why does this work in this way and why some others just fall apart? And so... Yeah, after London Olympics was the real sort of starting point and where we started. So I started the business with my wife who's um, got a brand marketing background. And so it was a pretty complementary set of skills to to build you know, the business that we've been building since that point. And, um, and so that was the early... And, and then just having a brand. The thing that I, I realised too is that the athletes in the preparation to an Olympic Games, put in so much time and energy and effort into their preparation to be at their peak performance. And my thinking was that I didn't think we had gear that matched off with what the athletes were doing. And so I felt like that we were wearing gear that was a okay, but not at the same level. What do you mean? Just not good fitting? Just bit crappy material? Comfort. Or? performance i remember the london rowing suits that we wore and we had to tear the stitching to actually put them on so like just some basics that sort of and just the overall fit and comfort and, and thinking that sort of it was a garment that people had actually spent a lot of time going these athletes are about to compete at their pinnacle event that they've been training for their whole lives have we put the same intensity to, into this garment as what the athletes have done into their preparation? I just didn't think, and, and like those examples of yeah, yeah. having to tear the gear. to Fit you beforehand and actually look at the demands of the sport or anything, or it was just, here's the kit? Oh, look, I mean, at a sort of, at a level, but it was more just, does a medium fit you or does a, does a size large fit you? So it wasn't, is this fabric, going to perform and feel super comfortable and then if it's a really hot conditions in Tokyo how is this fabric going to perform when you're sweating and, and you need it to keep you cool and, and 
I mean, just that level of detail that sort of went into the garments, I, particularly in our sport, I didn't see was, was something that was sort of there. So I felt like there was a lot of room for a brand to come in and, and deliver gear that changed, changed the game a little bit in terms of the performance apparel available. And, and I mean, look at the brand name is the, the year of the first Olympics. So we was, Rowing's always been a home base, but we, was, we felt like there, there needed to be a brand that heroed the Olympic sports and Olympic athletes in a better way because professional sort of sports got their limelight and attention and the big brands that sat around those sports. And we sort of felt like, yeah, that the athletes and the quality of people involved at the Olympic sports um, should be heroed and celebrated in a better way and and that was part of the thinking of the brand too is that can we build a brand that really celebrates these athletes and yeah so what was it was the, the first bit of kit that you put together a rowing set yeah it was we got it you know what we actually we did a good job of getting the first product we got all the sort of key pieces really well set up and it was a um it was a good, it was a really good rowing set. The fabric was comfortable. And, and so I can see now, like we actually involved some good people in terms of product technicians at the very beginning. Okay. A bit fluky. Like we weren't, we didn't know whether these people really knew their stuff, but a couple of people involved were really good at the product development. And so sort of you don't have a, a clothing background. You're from finance, your wife's marketing. But you no, knew there was no. there was a problem to be resolved, right? There was a kit that wasn't up to the yeah. scratch. Yeah. So no no product knowledge in terms of then how do we put this together and how do we get it you know made and yeah. So there was a lot of big gaps. <laughs> how did you find all these people? I'm just going to well, while you're thinking about that, I'm just going to let the dog and cat out, mate. Otherwise, you're going to hear barking in a minute. Uh-huh. <laughs> Challenges of working from the home office, mate. You've got yeah. a cat on the window no, like this. What's nice, what's sort of nice these days is that everyone's dealing with similar relatable things in terms of their home home office setup. So mate, yeah. I was on a conference called America last night and this kid just walk, little baby walks past the screen going, Mama. It's like everyone's yep. like, Oh yeah, hi. Yeah. Two years yeah. ago everyone'd be like, That's you can't yeah, that's professional. So professional. And then yeah. these days it's like, Oh yeah, I can relate to that. So yeah. So mate, back into it, you go out and find some experts in materials and, and you're briefing them on what you want to get done. I've got to say, like, that's, it's a really hard part of the business to put together. Like find really, you know, it's a pretty closed industry in terms of expertise. So it's not like sort of other industries where you can jump on and find the best people involved in sort of other areas. I mean, sports was the classic one. If you want to understand who's the best at different areas of sport, like you can do your research and, and put together a short list pretty quickly. Whereas the apparel industry, is, it's quite close shop in terms of finding access to the best people. And particularly as you start, like you've got, you've got to really do a lot of talking and learning yourself and, and then 
starting to join the dots is yeah is one of the sort of biggest you know challenges and the product development piece the what fabrics truly work i mean the big thing for me was that because i was you know an athlete i, I was obsessed with knowing what the fabrics were how they got put together what happens when you really start to sweat and so and so trying to not just get fooled by yeah this all this fabric does this and but sort of do your homework on yeah does it truly perform and is this sort of something that you can yeah Cameron what were some of the the first things you wanted to correct in the uni I mean you've talked about the fact that it didn't fit around the you couldn't get your arm through and around (laughs) under your armpit not big enough for your your chest yeah well I mean look we're really obsessed with the fit and then when you move so like when you move with a garment on does it move um, with you in the right way or does it feel like that you know sort of so freedom of movement is what we talk about within our sort of business and product team is like does this you know garment you know provide you just that complete freedom of movement and when you put it on and because it's nice to sit in the change room and put something on and go yeah this looks good but then can you when you jump in a rowing boat or sit on a rowing machine, does it sort of feel really comfortable to extend your body like that? And is there any sort of areas of tension that sort of occurs? And so th- that was the starting point is looking at fit and it's the key purpose was just the freedom of movement. So biomechanics and understanding the range of movement and mm-hmm. tension of where sort of fabrics stretch and where they should stretch and support. So where you should, should feel supported within the garment and where you just want to feel like it's almost like so one of the at the the very first olympic games they weren't wearing too many clothes and i i think i don't think they're wearing too many clothes at all so i mean we sort of think about like that idea of just uninhibited movement and and can our gear sort of achieve that so that's something that we're pretty obsessed with and then the breathability and of the fabrics and just a, a feeling of being lightweight, I think, was something that we were striving for too. Is just again probably centered around that freedom of movement. But there's yeah, there's a number of sort of things we we're trying to achieve. But but that was the starting point. Thank goodness you you didn't use cotton, right? And the fit, it it looks good when you're standing up, but as soon as you you go into the the seated position that. Gathering around the the waist, if you're especially if you're a lightweight. And yeah. see, did did you look at any other sports different, like cycling, for instance? They they are huge on innovation. Brands like Rafa, Castelli, I think Asos were one of the first uh, yep. to bring out the skin suit, and they're dealing with aerodynamics a lot. I mean, admittedly, they're moving at much higher speeds, but they're the grippers around the leg to hold the leg in place. Yep. Yes. So yes, we have dived right into like a lot of the areas of innovation that's occurring in other sports and, and where there's crossover. And so even our latest rowing suit, which the Australian team were wearing at the Tokyo Olympics, has this silicon leg band, which is produced in Italy and we put it into our garments. We tested a number of different sort of versions of it, but this is something that sort of sits really comfortably keeps this rowing suit in place throughout the range of movement 
in the in the sort of rowing stroke is quite you know extreme in terms of the body position compared to cycling like even so cycling your legs are up and down but the rest of you is pretty static but and so this silicon leg band that we now put in our top suit instead of some rowing suits where it starts to really ride up your leg or it just feels loose and it doesn't feel like then it fits you sort of properly and it can move around a bit it's this has a really consistent fit and it stays in place as you train and race and so that's been a really nice innovation then some of the fabrications we use like we've got uh, the back panel has a carbon fiber um, mesh it's um so super lightweight breathes really well antibacterial so it's got a whole lot of benefits to it but but the key thing that we're looking at there is just the the lightweight sort of breathability of your back rowing you're Mm -hmm. obviously heading backwards and if the panel in the back is you know breathes really well and is is super lightweight then that's going to make you feel like you're a lot cooler than the cooling too right yeah yeah so that was particularly for the tokyo olympics key consideration is just your heat ability to deal with the heat and humidity over there and and then how the fabrics would perform got rid of the seam in the pants actually in the back of the pants. yeah that, that wasn't so the row yeah anyway well that's another I, thing like just the chafe of you yeah know, the chafing seams that are in the wrong place i mean like yeah. it's there's some stuff where i look at and it's completely obvious that this should be designed in a different way because that's going to cause a fair bit of irritation if yeah i mean that's we feel like we've got some really great performance garments in the range now but but we're always always anxious to try to work out the next thing that we're trying to do and and where do we take the the core product and the the other sort of product we're developing where do we take it next and so i think there's still a lot of space for for where we want to sit ahead with the range and how about the motion lines i mean that was the first thing that i saw i don't know how many years ago it was cameron but i saw the motion technology and i thought wow that makes sense if you're coaching as an athlete it probably makes no sense right because you're not getting the perspective of looking back at yourself but from when i'm looking at the kayaker in the back there i can see is his core upright how's the blade the hand position above the line i mean who came up with that idea and is it used much people yeah i mean like so i came up with the concept just purely through um the experience of wearing a rowing suit that had a um, line down the, the side profile line and and it was one that, like, if I'd wear it and then in the post, you know, videos, sessions that we used to run and the coach would sometimes make a comment, oh, it's good that you're wearing that rowing suit because, you know, you can see the body position here. And we started just to explore it. where we started or why we got into the, the original idea was that we're looking again at the biomechanics of your movement and how our gear was moving with the body and then we started to look at, well, can the designs help with just assessing that movement? And that'd be a really nice win for the coaches. And then, and then, yeah, as we started to dive a bit deeper, it's like, well, this is a really just simple concept that you know, makes it easier to just clock, okay, well, that's what the athlete's doing and that part of the stroke. And then particularly in crew boats, the ability to match up and, and see the lines moving in sequence. And then the real benefit for the athlete is within those video sessions, they've been able to 
pause and and the athlete having a better understanding of what they're doing with their body was uh, yeah a whole lot of different wins that we felt like uh, the motion ip and and product was um delivering and so it's like again really simple concept that's supposed to be just a visual aid to how you can improve and it's a great coaching tool but the athlete gets to benefit and it does get used i mean like we we constantly you know getting requests to uh, include the motions of lines within the garments so that and some coaches are very visual so they'll use it quite a bit and other coaches they're not so visual and so it's something that you know we're not instructing people how you should use it but again it's just another visual aid or another sort of aid in the whole sort of performance in approach and environment that um, can be pretty useful and then the the other exciting thing for us that sits around the concept is just the fit in some other sports where movement's just so critically important so we've been over the last few years worked with some major league baseball teams and cricket australia and tennis and golf and and so there's a lot of yeah we've run a number of projects in different areas where it's building and i mean our sort of you know core focus is on the rowing and paddle and you know what we're doing with that sort of range but but we've got a lot of different projects that continue to just develop and and sort of build around particularly that yeah that motion sort of ip and the fit that sort of sits there with other sports so it was a new it was like a brand new concept was patented the the idea and um and so like you would have thought someone would have come up with this a lot earlier just given the simple sort of nature of it but but it's and it, what i like as you mentioned like it's a nice identifier for our brand like when oh, you totally. see it yeah yeah it's totally. it's I got a really nice country, yeah. you can see the aussies straight away and yep. you oh that's nice and i thought it was part of your brand but when you explained it on your website it totally makes sense and you, it's one of those things it's so obvious why hasn't someone done it before and yeah. you, you've and <clears throat> i think that the simple thing that uh, the coach can do or what i do is i just use the iphone and yeah. just record the athlete and you don't almost don't have to say anything right they go oh hang on a minute i can see how i'm twisting and leaning over and others can spot it because it's there but you've got to make sure you put the the top on correctly <laughs> make sure yeah, it's, it's not true. twisted or which is not hard to yeah. do but yeah no, that's yeah you got to get this sort of well you got to put it on right sense. but that's yeah. that's like not any, back to any. front and inside <laughs> out yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah maybe, i can't help i can't help everyone with that kind of thing. no no you're not willing to come around and help people get dressed mate what are you what are you up to now you're you're in your 40s you've stopped rowing and you've i heard you made a little bit of a comeback and god help any masters rower out there cameron might be uh coming out and racing or are you just gonna keep on knocking well, off sub probably not in the rowing as much i've spent a bit of time so during the sort of lockdown periods that we've had here in spent a bit of time on the rowing machine so i didn't do too much work on the rowing machine at all and then last year as i turned 40 i wrote a program to do a sub six minute 2k on you the, sent uh, me that program and it's uh <coughs> high intensity 50 50 percent of high, high intensity would it not be 50 yeah, 60 percent yeah oh yeah. yeah yeah it was solid it was yeah. like it was like the intent there was not to do too much time 
on the ergo because I, I had a lot of other things that I was trying to sort of do. I've got yeah. two young daughters and a growing business and I didn't have a huge amount of time. So it was about, okay, what are some sessions that you can really get the right level of intensity in? Uh, Six-week training program. And, and so six it wasn't an easy for program. six weeks, roughly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it, it was pretty solid. But once you got into it, like, you know, sort of the first two weeks were a bit of a shock to the system. And then once you found your groove, it was, you could go after it a little bit, but it's, I hit the mark. I got 559, which was, <laughs> which, to be honest, like it, the, the, it was the hardest 2K I've probably done just because you realize you get a good appreciation for why you train for 11 months to do a full hour 2k hit out in a sort of a race or on a sort of rowing machine and the reason you do 11 months is that the last three 300 meters 500 meters will will really you'll get found out if you haven't done the work and and i had a reasonable no i say i had a reasonable base i probably didn't have the best base it was one of those things as your family sort of young family starts to come along and you lose a bit of sort of motivation for sort of the consistent training. And so my trajectory of, you know, where I was physically going was probably <laughs> as everyone does. And then writing that program and since doing that, like I've, my training and just my enjoyment of doing this sort of the training has, has certainly sort of changed again. So I'm glad I did it. It wasn't easy, but it's, but it, it certainly got the result. And then the after impact of it has been, yeah, it's been really good. Did you write that yourself based on an assembly of all the training programs over 20 yeah. years or did someone help you? No, I wrote that myself. And again, yeah, it was a bit of a hit focus. There was a session that we did in the 2008 campaign, which was really focused on two minutes on, one minute off, times five typically, times three was the sort of the core session. And the two minutes on was sub-max trying to stay and this was in the boat sub max so rating 28 to 30 i think was probably sort of where we sat most of the time but and really consistent on a speed that was sort of delivered i think that's the mid-range you know middle thousand just ability to just keep the legs driving mm-hmm. and just feel like you've got that again that sort of really matched off power phase of sort of the crew and and so that i sort of remember being one of those sessions where it's like that's where we're going to win also really put ourselves in the mix here is that session and so the program was built a little bit around that sort of structure and and yeah that I'll was just repeat that it's five times two minutes on one minute off and you do that three times yep. so you're getting about 30 minutes of really high threshold work yep and what would yep. the rest be between the sets Oh, you want to rest, like you want to sort of re-recover. So sort of five minutes um, at a minimum, but somewhere between five and 10 minutes. Not too long because, you know, I think your body starts to think it's recovery time. And so I think sort of five to seven minutes is probably a good recovery time there. Yeah. So, mate, we've, we've been going for about an hour and 20 now, and I know you've it's it's late in Melbourne, so just get some quick ones out of you for the people. What if you could only have one piece of exercise equipment, Cameron? What would that be? And you can't have a seven seventy six outfit. It's got to be a piece of equipment. Well, I never thought I'd say this, but it, I mean, it's probably a competition between the 
the rowing machine and the and now I've bought a surf ski and I've loved I, the last 12 months I've jumped into one of these epic um, surf skis it's awesome love loving it so that's that's been good fun yeah and what are your go-to strength and conditioning exercises the ones that you, you don't have to look up a program you just go hit the gym you do this routinely well i've got a really simple routine which it's about 10 minutes in my sort of strength side of things and it is dumbbells which are probably about 13 14 kilos each and i'm doing up to 100 biceps 30 over the overhead 15 cleans and then 15 front squats yeah 15 front squats and then 15 upright row and and that is my (laughs) that's my strength session you know what it's actually been super effective like it's it's like the weight's a reasonable weight so like you're you're pretty but it only takes (laughs) it'll take five or six minutes to do and i'll do that once a day or sometimes twice a day if i'm feeling a bit more energized but it's actually as a strength maintaining strength it's been pretty effective for me and how about your your favorite routine or the go-to routine to give yourself a bump in performance if you remember back you mentioned the five times two minute on one minute off but is there any ergo or session on the water that you knew that you'd go to to really give that extra boof, just pick yourself up a bit more in performance Oh, look, I mean, I, my sort of range was probably more in the sort of um, 6K, 5K, 6K ergo. So I always felt like like a good 6K ergo session, if you did it well, really gave you a bit of a... Because, again, like I think physically I was really well suited to that distance and, and it wasn't too long. So it was like you, know, you should... Well, when I was sort of in good form, you do it comfortably under 20 minutes under 19 minutes when i was in in really good form and and yeah i feel like that was a really good physical sort of effort without the lactic burn that you get from a 2k effort so that was always a session i enjoyed doing any rowing equipment that you've got your eye on or that you think other you could recommend to others oh rowing equipment no no i mean look not really outside of just i've tried the hydro rowing machine we don't have them here in australia yet but but i've tried that over in the um us last time i was there and i think that's a pretty cool machine to have a go at so that but then no i don't have any sort of obvious ones i mean concept two obviously i've got the concept two ergo here so i spend my training sessions on the rowing machine on that and then have you tried the Sidious Remex seat pad? No. That's, no, a, that's a game no. changer, Cameron. Seriously. It's, okay. It makes it so much more comfortable. And I don't know if you yeah. get the, the hamstring pain after a while. It, yeah, well, that kind of thing. Yeah. And the, I mean, the only other sort of thing that is my Garmin watch, which is the Phoenix Garmin, that's been pretty good. I, I didn't really, I've had an Apple watch and I didn't really use it for the sort of sports side of things. And then since I've had the Garmin, just getting the heart rate and getting the sort of the ability to look at your sessions and your, your outputs and distances. Use it on and, the surf ski too. It's 
great with a GPS. Use it on the surf ski, so that's yeah. where I've been dialing that in quite a bit. And so that's a pretty useful tool that you can, if you want, if you if you want to sort of dive deep into a whole lot of information around your sessions, then then yeah, go for your life there because that's that gives you a lot. Any books or resources that you'd recommend people tap into to learn more about high performance or rowing? That's a good. I mean, look, you know, I mean, in terms of potentially not high performance, but the boys in the boat. Great book. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like just in terms of a story, if you think that you're doing it hard. (laughs) Wait, you're 12 years old, kicked out of the home. Go read that book and sort of just, if you want a greater appreciation for just what is our lifestyle these days and then what people had to navigate through just to, not jumping a boat, but just to survive. I mean, I, that was just one of the, the most beautiful sort of stories and books just to, it was just an amazing book that sort of, I think, look, there's a lot of people in the rowing world that have read that book, obviously, but but I, I felt like it just gave me a great perspective of going, don't, don't whinge about that we're trying to get through because you're not in the same position that those guys were back in, back in those days where... It was a game of survival. And so, it lends um, perspective, that, doesn't it? Amazing resilience, grit, mindset, phenomenal. Phenomenal yeah. self-belief. It know, just, it had it all and it had it all. And it was, yeah, just the sports story, but then the whole story of those times and the depression and how hard life was. And so I think, I mean, that's just a, an outstanding book. And at the moment I'm reading the Andre Agassi one, which uh, I'm enjoying that because. It's the book called Open? Yeah, 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 I think it is. And it, it's, well, it's pretty interesting because like uh, you hear he had some troubled sort of upbringings and then you read the story and it's like, jeez. <laughs> yeah. Again, yeah, the fact it that Wasn't he, his dad, dad put him on amphetamines or something? To... His dad was a lunatic. Yeah. And, you know, just, and tried to take him from a little boy into a tennis star and that was his only sort of thing that he was going to do and it didn't matter whether he liked it or not. It was his, that was what he was going to do and it's just a really interesting. I like, I really enjoy reading stories of different sort of journeys that sort of people go through. At the moment, I mean, because of the business, I, I really enjoy podcasts. There's a podcast, How I Built This, which, and I think anyone could, find those interesting because it's just stories of different businesses and companies that you're probably pretty familiar with but just understanding where they started from and and how they built it you feel like there was a really clear plan and it got put together like this and then it all came together and most of these most of the great companies that we know like the early days is fascinating in terms of just the what they had to get through and yeah it's really inspiring stuff because like all the sort of it's not easy to you know build something and, and there's a lot of hard stuff that you have to get through to put it all together but but uh, yeah there's as long as you've got the determination to do it then you'll get there well you, you might enjoy uh shoe dog which is a book oh, about, i love that uh, book. Phil Knight. Yeah. you read that yeah no, i've yeah. read that too that yeah <laughs> That's inspiring. That's inspiring. Isn't it? I mean, because like, and the, the amazing thing there with Nike is that, or Nike or Nike, depends where you're from, but is it's not like, it feels like a company that's been around for a hundred plus years, but it's pretty recent history. Like, and, and again, feels, you know, early days, like it's not like he was 
building this global behemoth of a company from the very beginning. There was a lot of stops and starts and yeah, time in Japan and back and forth and trips where he was just discovering himself and learn by yeah. doing, mate. Yeah. Learned so it's doing. so that's a great book. Yeah, absolutely. Cameron, looking back on all your experience, what advice would you give your 18-year-old self? Say, Cameron, mate, follow this. And also, what advice would you give yourself 18 years old? Say, you've got to just ignore this. The advice would be really sort of get comfortable with asking questions and being a real student of the sport. And just, yeah, drop your ego at that age and just, just become a student and just learn as much as you can because that's the stuff that will speed up your sort of development and, and your learning curve. So, I mean, I think so that is a key one that I'd go back and just go, just don't be afraid to ask stupid questions. Just get yourself out there and, and learn as much as you can. And then things to avoid. Well, I think sort of things to avoid is like feel feeling like um, you are doing things that work and sort of, you know, but it's not, it's, it doesn't have a purpose to it. And so don't fall into the trap of doing things that don't have a purpose. As having a bit of fun. I'm not saying that you can't sort of just relax and not, everything doesn't have to have purpose in terms of your whole life. But when you are, trying to invest when you're investing time i think is that what you're saying when, when you're, you're investing really time on? make sure that you're pretty clear on, on what you're there to do with it because um otherwise yeah go back and sit sit at home and watch a good movie because because it's yeah like i think that's a, the, the trap that's yeah is an easy one to get into is just work working hard for the sake of it which you don't need to do and finally, is there anything I haven't asked you that perhaps I should have? Oh, look, Bill, I feel like we could keep chatting for, <laughs> for, for the next sort of year on a whole lot of different topics. I'm sure there's heaps of stuff that I'd love to keep picking your brain about too in terms of some of the work you're doing with the, the training programs and, and then even the business side of things. And I mean, this is part of the enjoyment I, I sort of get out of what we're doing today with the business, but being an athlete sort of and just connecting, you know, with, with people like yourself and having these conversations and learning a bit. And I, I, I love this part of what we get to do. Nothing immediately. Where can people find you online? What's your website and Twitter and Instagram? 776bc.com is our website and then 776bc on Instagram and Facebook and all the sort of the channels there. We do it, yeah, we do a session typically on a Wednesday or here in Australia on a Wednesday for just interviewing different sort of athletes around the world, which I find a lot of fun. And, and then I've got my own personal um, Instagram, which I share a bit of my training content on, which is... Uh, Cam Mac Mac, I think, or Cam, I should know oh, this. No, no. Yeah, you should, mate. But what, what what I'll do is I'll put it in in the podcast notes. Cameron, you you've been um, so generous with your time. I'm very grateful for how you're sharing with the audience and also what you're doing on Instagram and and your passion for the sport and to help people learn and grow from your experience. And and you're giving us an avenue into speaking to some amazing athletes. I'm very grateful. I know 
a lot of people appreciate what you're doing. So thank you very much for your time. Awesome. Thanks, Bill. Uh, enjoyed, enjoyed the chat. Join me next time when I'll be talking with one of the rowing world's most interesting people. And if you like this episode, you can subscribe so you never miss an episode in the future. Oh, and please, if you like it, leave us a five-star review. That really helps us out. You can find out more about our unique training system and high-performance coaching by visiting whchambers.com.